This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Tribe Talk. Jim Rosenhouse along with you this weekend as we continue with our hot stove editions of Tribe Talk. Finally, after the postseason run for the Indians completed in the first days of November with that classic seven-game World Series won by the Cubs, but certainly doesn't diminish what was a memorable postseason for the Tribe. Our guest list on this week's show features Indians general manager Mike Chernoff. We talked to Mike about some of the important things that the front office will need to do here in the coming weeks to make sure that that roster is replenished and ready to go for spring training 2017. But we also asked him about when the importance of Game 7 of the World Series hit home for him and the rest of the front office staff. Once we got upstairs to go watch the game a couple of minutes before the game, Derek Falvey, our, our assistant GM who's heading on to Minnesota, looks at me and says, you know, this may be this may go down as one of the most important games in baseball history. And I think that's the moment when it kind of hit all of us, Chris and Derek and I were right there, um, when you recognize just how, um, how, how cool of a time this was. Also on the guest list this week, Tim Belcher, who joins us on Indians radio broadcasts from time to time, just completed his 15th season as a member of the Indians front office, also some time there as Indians pitching coach. But he was part of that small army of advanced scouts who prepared the tribe for any of their postseason opponents this past October. And reflecting back on the postseason that was, Tim talked about the uphill battle that the Indians faced with some major injury issues to work through. When you have a depleted staff, when you lose the likes of a Carlos Carrasco and Danny Salazar, play the whole year essentially without Michael Brantley, to get where we got, you know, on the brink of winning a, a world championship was was astounding. And it's a credit to those other guys that stepped up, you know, the next man up kind of theory. You know, it's a credit to the Ryan Merritts and the Coco Chris and the Tyler Naquins and all those guys, um, you know, that they stepped up. And, and uh, again, I, I go back to our staff and Tito uh, and the job that they did putting those players in, in situations where they they could succeed and make our team successful was just was just masterful so it's mike chernoff tim belcher and plenty of news and notes coming your way as tribe talk gets rolling right here on the cleveland indians radio network welcome back to tribe talk back with you from progressive field in downtown cleveland and uh, for the most part the ballpark is quiet this time of year, but Brandon Kanke and his grounds crew they have a major undertaking going on that started this past week as they are changing out the entire grass playing surface here at Progressive Field, replacing it with some new grass, and that'll be all set to go in time for the Indians' home opener next April. But they're taking advantage of some better-than-expected weather here in the early stages of the month of November to try and get a head start on that project. So... 
The old surface is just about gone, the new surface being laid, and that should be good to go in time for the Indians' first home game next April. Our first guest this week is Mike Chernoff, the Indians' general manager who just completed his first season in that role for the Tribe, officially named general manager last October. And what a first season it was, not only for Mike, but also Chris Antonetti, the Indians' president of baseball operations, and his outstanding staff that uh, has numerous individuals who are involved in all the player acquisition moves that the Indians made. And when you look back, at not only last offseason, but then the moves that were made at the trade deadline, and then just before the Indians had to set their playoff roster, the Indians' front office made as many impact moves that proved to be critical for this team to make a deep run in the postseason as any team in baseball. So certainly a tip of the cap to Chris, Mike, Derek Falvey, who has now moved on to the Minnesota Twins, and many others who are a part of that. We had a chance to visit with Mike shortly after the Indians' World Series run ended last week with that Game 7 extra inning defeat to the Chicago Cubs. And uh, we'll talk to Mike in a little bit about what lies ahead for the Tribe, some of the important moves that they need to make in terms of their roster. But we did have a chance to reflect back on that Game 7. And we asked Mike, with, with all the work being done roster-wise, just the games that need to be played as the World Series moved on, what was the day of Game 7 like for him and the rest of the Indians' upper echelon and that front office staff? I think in the moments leading up to it, in the day leading up to it, you know, you feel the gravity of the situation in a potential knockout game. But at the same time, I, I think one of the amazing things about Tito and our entire clubhouse was how normal it felt in here. There was this um, incredible gravity to the situation, and yet it felt like a normal day in some ways leading up to the game. Once we got upstairs to go watch the game a couple of minutes before the game, Derek Falvey, our, our assistant GM who's heading on to Minnesota, looks at me and says, you know, this may, be, this may go down as one of the most important games in baseball history. And I think that's the moment when it kind of hit all of us, Chris and Derek and I were right there, um, when you recognize just how... Um, how, how cool of a time this was to have 68 years for Cleveland, 108 years for Chicago, um, and to have all of that kind of pent-up emotion in one game. And then the way the game played out, obviously, um, was a microcosm for all of that with, you know, getting down early, Raj's home run. Uh, I talked to Klubes yesterday. He said he basically blacked out in the middle of that. It was so, uh, so it was one of those moments. He said, I remember him hitting the ball, and then I was slapping Brandon Geyer's hand next. So, I think a lot of fans probably will understand that um, in the emotion we had in that moment. And, you know, at the end, it was a really tough loss for us. But at the same time, I think a lot for the organization and hopefully the city to feel proud of. Sometimes a loss like that, uh, post-game, players, managers might say, you know, it slipped away. Uh, The other team didn't necessarily beat our team. But uh, in this case, it didn't seem like that was the case at all. And, And players felt satisfied with the with the effort and, and that they did everything they could yeah i mean as an organization we stand for a few things we never back down from a challenge um we're about grit and resiliency we're about a collective effort coming from everybody each one of those values was apparent in that game so it's hard to feel like we didn't do everything that we possibly could that we didn't leave everything we had on the field and i think it's the moments when you feel like you could have done something else Um, or you could have tried a little harder and not made that one mistake, those are the moments where you kind of look back and really 
feel like something slipped away. I don't think that was the case in this year, in this series, in the whole postseason, and especially in Game 7. I think there was a lot to be proud of even just in that game. Uh, and, guys, tanks were empty at the end. That's The Cubs just beat us. That was it. It's early November already because of the long postseason run, and I know that puts you up against some things time frame-wise. What's happening now to make sure you take care of some things to set things up for next season? Yeah, so we head out to general managers' meetings next week. Um, get right back to it, and you know it's a short, uh, it's a shorter off season, both for the players who have to recover a little bit quicker, and for us in the front office where we have to um, get things together, figure out our off season plan, and start making some moves. I think we're in a fortunate position because we're bringing back most of our club. Um, at the same time, our scouts, our development guys. Our guys in the front office have been working their tails off during this time, um, even with all the postseason stuff going on, to put us in a good place uh, heading into the offseason. So I think we'll be prepared. It just maybe a little, qu- a little bit of a quicker turnaround for us. And some injured players coming back will give you a big boost. And let's go through them individually. Carlos Carrasco, everything going well there and, and should be 100% spring training? Yeah, we expect everybody to come back in healthy next year. Carrasco should be on a relatively normal throwing program. This offseason, um, he, he's healing well. He's going to start a strength program um, pretty soon, and then his throwing program should be pretty normal. Brantley, uh, Michael Brantley, who's also recovering, sh- is going to hopefully ramp up baseball activity in December. And all signs are that both he, Carrasco, Salazar, all the guys who were kind of battling some injuries at the end of the year should be ready to go in spring training. And you mentioned Salazar. He did get back at the end of the season. Any lingering concerns, though, about uh, being able to, to hold up for a lengthy period of time, or, or do you feel that he took some time to, to get strong again and, and feels good about the offseason? No, he looked great You know, in those relief appearances. I think the challenge was we, we didn't have a place where we could build him back up to starting, and so we couldn't put him back into the rotation without facing live hitters in a starting setting and building up those innings. So we struggled with that in the World Series, but he, in terms of his stuff and his rehab process, he is in a great spot. His stuff looked awesome the other night when he was in. Um, and so the expectation is, you know, he's, he's going to continue to put the work in this offseason to put his body and his arm in a good spot, but the expectation is he'll be good to go in, in the spring. And you mentioned shorter offseason for the, the best of reasons because of the long postseason run. The fact that Terry Francona has been through it before with Boston and has some experience on how to get a team prepared for that next year. Big asset there uh, from an Indian standpoint? Oh, it's a huge asset. I mean, it helped us in the in the postseason ha- to have his experience, and it, it helps us throughout. He's been through just about everything in the game, um, and his experience allows him to reflect back on the past and help guys through those things. So whether it's helping relievers get recovered after the tough month that they just had, some of the guys, Kluber, Tomlin, guys that went out on short rest, helping them through that um, and to prepare for next season, you know, he is the perfect guy to do that. It was uh, one heck of a run, and, and I know fans in Cleveland enjoyed enjoyed it immensely. Mike, thanks so much for coming by. I appreciate it. Sure. Thanks, Rosie. That's Indians general manager Mike Chernoff just finishing up his 13th season with the ball club. The first is the general manager and certainly a big part of why the Indians had so much great success in 2016. It was quite a playoff run for the Tribe, and when we come back, we'll talk about it with Indians special assistant to baseball operations an outstanding major league pitcher for 14 seasons, talking about Tim Belcher. He'll be our guest when we return after this timeout on the Cleveland Indians Radio Network.
Welcome back to Tribe Talk. Jim Rosenhouse along with you this weekend from Progressive Field in downtown Cleveland. And don't forget, if you'd like to check us out on Twitter, you can do so. Our Twitter address is at Indians Radio. We try and keep you up to date on times of this show and guests on this show throughout the off season, And, of course, when the season is underway, I try and keep you posted on the very latest things going on with the Indians Radio broadcasts. So it's at Indians Radio, our Twitter address, where you can follow us on Twitter. Tim Belcher joins us now, the Indians Special Assistant to Baseball Operations. We're having Tim on this week to talk about an area that proved to be critical for the Indians throughout the postseason. He was part of a group of scouts who were working advanced scouting for the Indians, tracking different teams down the stretch of the regular season who could be potential playoff opponents. And all things considered, when you look back at the at the postseason and how the Indians fared, one of the common themes that came up was how prepared the Indians were, both pitching-wise and hitting-wise, to attack their opposition's weaknesses. Now, a lot of that is analytics, and the Indians have an outstanding analytics department that provides the very latest in statistical information that can be extremely helpful, and that's filled out with the work of the advanced scouts. And as Tim will explain, the Indians had... Uh, what amounted to a small army out there taking into account any potential teams that they could play. And then as those teams went by the wayside, the ones that became clear that the Indians would play in the postseason, well, the Indians put several advanced scouts in each of those areas. And Tim was a part of that, most notably following the Toronto Blue Jays from the last portion of the regular season on through their first-round playoff series against Texas and then turning over that information to the Indians coaching staff to get them prepared for the American League Championship Series. What's the experience for Tim Belcher? Well, 14 years as a major league pitcher, broke in with the Dodgers and was outstanding in their World Series run back in 1988, went on to pitch in 14 major league seasons for several major league teams. And uh, really 15 years now with the Indians in a variety of capacities, both as a special assistant two years as their pitching coach, and uh, just a great perspective on what it takes to be successful and what players need to be put in a position to be successful. And when talking about all that information from the analytics side and also the advanced scouting side and how that may have come into play during the postseason, he says no matter what the information the players receive, it still always comes down to great execution on the part of those players to have success. Well, let's be clear. As we have this discussion, it always comes down to the players and their execution and their personal knowledge. If they're a pitcher, their personal knowledge and experiences with a given hitter and for the hitters, their personal knowledge and experiences uh, with a given pitcher, regardless of the information they've been given from either the analytics department, the scouting department, their managers or coaches, whomever. Uh, so credit always goes to them, and they, they did a tremendous job, you know, deciphering what information they were given, uh, using it to the best of their ability, and, and going out and executing it. And looking back at uh, you played and pitched a long time in the major leagues and, and had extensive postseason experience during that time, is it difficult sometimes because you do maybe get some more information during that postseason time to, to decipher what works best for you and, and take that in a positive direction? It is. It can be. But it, it, it depends on the player. You know, if, if you're a player and I was this kind of player, particularly the last six to 10 years, eight, eight to 10 years of my career, later in my career, 
where I did my own scouting. You know, I kept my own hitters, and I used whatever advance reports or whatever my pitching coach or my manager told me about a particular team or, or hitter just to check a box, you know, check it off. Okay, that, that jives with what I have, so we're good. I'm really good there. Well, that's a little different than what I have, but, you know, my experience with this guy is pretty strong. I got a, you know, I got a large sample size. And I feel confident in it. I'm going with what I have, you know. So, in the end, it always comes down to the player and their, and their um, you know, their knowledge of who they are, you know, uh, as a hitter, as a pitcher, and how they can best use their talents and abilities to attack that pitcher or hitter based on, you know, strengths and weaknesses that have been identified either by themselves or their coaches or managers and scouting department. So with that perspective, you're on the Toronto Blue Jays for a while before the Indians eventually met them in the American League Championship Series. As you're putting together your reports, do you, do you think of it from that perspective on, on what you look, look to gain as a player and, and then what you can pass along now as an advanced scout? I, th- I think about it in this respect. I think about it in keeping it simple, you know, implying the KISS principle, if you will, you know, keep it simple, stupid. Because I know having been there, done that as a player, you know, good information is good. It doesn't mean that more information is better. You know, sometimes too much information is just too cumbersome and you can't use it. So what I did when I was a player and what I did even as a pitching coach, uh, the two years that I was a pitching coach, is I, I took information and pared it down to the smallest bit of information that I could get and retain quickly and use on the fly during the game. You know, take an entire scouting report that might involve multiple pages of information and pare it down to just a one-sentence phrase. You know, on this particular hitter, we want to go hard and soft uh, away and occasionally push him off the plate in. That's something as simple as that. I mean, that's that actually, that's a pretty good plan for about 80% of the hitters in the, in the game today. Uh, that's just one example. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's a challenge to do that. I mean, in this day and age, we, we use analytics so much and, and information is so, you know, represents power, uh, information does. And, and, you know, so you want to provide your team with as much information as you can, but, you know, you have to make sure that it's, um, you know, it's usable and it's not too cumbersome on the players because, you know, the reality is they got to go out there and they got to react and, and be athletic and, and be who they are on the field. They can't be, you know, reading reading notes stuffed in their in their hat on how to attack a hitter or a pitcher. They got to go out there and play. Tim Belcher joining us, special assistant to the general manager and part of a, an extensive team of advanced scouts. And Tim, we we're talking earlier uh, the process of of identifying. You were on the Blue Jays, but. Uh, at the start of the process, as the regular season wound down, there were still a lot of teams potentially who could have been opponents for the Indians. How did that start to, to crystallize itself a little bit and, and get down to the teams that they eventually played? Well, what we did and what we've done in the past, you know, it's my 15th year with, with the, the team, so I've, I've experienced advance uh, and postseason advance a couple times now. Um, and I suspect that's what most teams do. You know, you, you identify the teams that are, that you, you identify that have a chance to make the postseason. And within 10 days or two weeks of the end of the regular season, you start putting scouts on them to start, um, 
advancing them. And then as they get eliminated, then you remove those scouts from that team, obviously, when they've eliminated themselves from uh, competition or uh, consideration for postseason, then you put them on somebody else. So, and then as that process goes, like for instance, me and, and uh, Dave Malpass were on Toronto the last 10 days of the regular season, seven in Toronto, three in Boston, and then we followed the, the Texas series, um, the division series that they had. So, uh, you know, we saw them like, what, 14 games, something like that. I think 13 of them live, one on TV. Uh, we didn't go to the wild card game against uh, Baltimore. We just, you know, instead of traveling in and out for one day, um, we watched that on TV. But And then as teams get eliminated, then you just take those guys and, in most cases, and place them on somebody else. So by the end, you know, by the time we were playing Toronto in the LCS, the team that I covered, we had then like six different on Chicago, on the Cubs in their NLCS championship series. So, um, you know, it's, it's interesting and it's, it's fun to do it that way. And it's, and you can, you can, you can, once you get down to the end, you know, you can take two of the six scouts and say, all right, you guys are responsible uh, for pitchers on both teams, the Cubs and the Dodgers. And you two guys, you other two guys are responsible for the hitters, both on the Dodgers and the Cubs. Learn everything you can, watch everything you can. And then you put a couple guys maybe on strategy, you know, uh, how they uh, manipulate their lineup, where they'll substitute defensively, who they'll pinch hit for, who'll do the bunting, who'll do the hitting and running, who'll steal, that kind of stuff. So uh, by the end, you, you pretty much got it covered. You know, and then, of course, uh, like everything in our game, you know, the, it, it's analytics driven, too. So there's an analytics component that plays a big part in the advanced scouting now, too. Because when I first started advancing, when I first worked for the Indians 15 years ago, when I first hired in, when you'd go out and advance somebody, you were also responsible for, you know, coming up with a, a, a plan to defense everybody and, and whether or not to shift this guy or whether or not to play this guy to pull or play into the off field. Now that's all done by analytics because the computer and the data for multiple, you know, years in some cases of at-bats can do it more effectively and more efficiently. And that with hitters, you know, where to defense them. And then the other thing with pitch distribution for pitchers, you know, the analytics can, can look at a larger sample size than a scout can over the course of a few days or a week. The computer can look at a sample size of, of, in some cases, for a veteran pitcher, years of pitch distribution and where he's throwing certain pitches, you know, and provide a heat map for that. So uh, it's it's an interesting progr- uh, process, and, and I think we do it pretty well. And I think, you know, I think most of the 30 teams do it in a similar fashion. And you mentioned the analytics part of it, and, and I remember a good example last year in the World Series when Eric Hosmer for Kansas City scored – uh, what turned out to be, a, a, I think, a tying run in, in the decisive game, and he, he scored on an infield ground ball because the Royals had scouted the first baseman for the Mets, and they knew that they could run on him potentially in that situation. It, is that what what you look for, some of those those hidden things that maybe analytics would not cover, uh, as, as you were saying about pitch distribution and yeah. some other things? Exactly. There, there are always things that a scout, a live scout can see that, that the analytics department, the computer and, and all the data cannot, you know, the, all the data can be very black and white and very precise and, and very usable for people in the front office to then discern what's happening and, and present it to the staff and then the staff present it to the players. But 
there's also an element that a live scout can see, particularly, say, in my case, you know, somebody that played for a long time at the highest level and experienced almost everything that he's seeing on the field, these teams experience that he's scouting. You know, I can sometimes have a gut feel on certain things that are going on out there that, you know, some kind of, you know, an analytics guy crunching numbers and using data just has no feel for that. It just doesn't come up in that. Now, what I see as a gut feel and what I might report in an advance report is a gut feel on, on one thing or the other. Sometimes it's hard to, hard to explain, hard to quantify, whereas the analytics are black and white. They're right there. I mean, you can see the numbers, and it's a very powerful tool. But I think you need both. I really do. And I, and I think our, our guys in the front office and, and our scouts and, and certainly our major league staff understands that. And, you know, I, I said earlier that it always comes down to the players executing, and it does. But I don't know if there's a major league staff and a major league manager that understands how to play both sides of that uh, as well as ours does. You know, Tito does a tremendous job of using and utilizing the front office and analytics as well as using and utilizing the scouts and gut feel that he has or that they have on a certain certain thing. And this might be a stretch, and you tell me if it is, but I know early in your career you were a part of a team that was considered to be an upset team uh, with the Dodgers uh, the year that they won it all uh, with the Kirk right. Gibson home run. I know there was one less level of playoffs at that time, but uh, any similarities there with what they were able to overcome and, and supposedly a, a shorter roster? You know what? I was asked that many times, and, yeah, a lot of similarities. You know, the, the, the A's won like 104 games that year, and they had the Bash brothers, and they scored more runs than anybody. So very similar to the Cubs in that respect, and a, and a heavy favorite against my team, the Los Angeles Dodgers. And, you know, we had a platoon at first of Franklin Stubbs and Mickey Hatcher, and – we had the eventual MVP in Kurt Gibson, who uh, had and listen to you know I, now maybe miss misspeaking a little bit, but you can look the numbers up yourself. But had like 25 home runs and 80 RBIs. Now today, that's run of the mill. <laughs> that's run of the mill seventh place hitter numbers. Those aren't MVP numbers. Um, but we did have like our team this year. We had a dominant starter in Oral Hershiser, and we had a very solid bullpen, not quite as accomplished as this Indians bullpen, but very solid. And then, you know, you had people step up that um, weren't expected to uh, at the beginning of the year. You know, it was my rookie year, so, you know, I had a solid year and won 12 games and, and won three in the postseason. So, you know, you had that, and, you know, we got big hits at the right time. So very similar in that respect. And, and um, that's why, you know, like we were talking earlier, about game five, you know, just wish we could have closed that out in game five, you know, in Chicago, winning three straight in Chicago, because you just knew, you know, the more chances you give a powerful lineup like the Cubs, you know, the more confidence they have and and, and of, of actually making a comeback, which they obviously did. Um, but yeah, very similar. And I, I thought about that a lot. I really thought about that a lot. But you know, it always comes down to uh, the old adage that good pitching beats good hitting. And I think that's exactly why, even though we were decimated with injuries without Salazar and Carrasco, um, up until game, up, up and until game three or, or game five and game six in the World Series, we just outpitched the other team, plain and simple. You know, good, good pitching beats good offense every day of the week. Well, not every day of the week, but over the course of weeks, you're going to win more than you lose, certainly. Uh, and that's the way it played out.
uh, I think we just ran out of steam, you know. Um, Tito had to lean on that bull, bullpen so much that I think, uh, you know, I think those guys kind of ran out of steam there in games six and seven, as did Corey, you know, coming back on three days rest uh, a second consecutive time. And, you know, that's what you run into. And that's why we discussed earlier why for you and I, it's so important that, man, let's close these guys out in five games. Let's not give them, let's not give them any more opportunities. Uh, but it was fun. It certainly was fun. Yeah, it, was a, it was a remarkable run, and I know a memorable one for fans here in Cleveland and Tri fans throughout the country as uh, they they made it to Game 7 extra innings uh, before succumbing to the Cubs. And, Tim, thanks so much for coming by. Always fun to talk baseball and, and enjoy the wintertime. All right. Thank you, Rosie. It's been, been my pleasure. And I always enjoy working with you or, or Hammy uh, filling in on the radio and hope we get an opportunity to do that again. Always, always enjoy the experience with you. Thank you. That's Tim Belcher, a, a great friend of the program, and always fun to work with Tim on game broadcasts throughout the season and gain his insight on some of the behind-the-scenes things that are going on that can have an impact on a team winning or losing. Well, stay tuned. When we come back, we'll take a look at some of the news and notes from the week gone by for the Tribe. That's as Tribe Talk continues on the Indians Radio Network. Welcome back to Tribe Talk. Jim Rosenhouse back with you from Progressive Field in downtown Cleveland. Time for some news and notes from the week gone by. And great news for Indian shortstop Francisco Lindor, the American League Gold Glove Award winner at shortstop. Youngest shortstop winner since Alan Trammell back in 1980 did it for the Detroit Tigers. Lindor just turned 23 or is just turning 23 on Monday so uh, that gives you an idea of of how quickly he has burst on the scene this was his first full major league season first Indians gold glover since Grady Sizemore won the award he was an American League outfield gold glove award winner back in 2008 and the first Indian shortstop to win the gold glove since Omar Vizquel the last time he did it with the Indians was 2001, of course, Vizquel, a multiple Gold Glove Award winner. Also, Lindor, at the age of 22 during the season, the youngest middle infielder in team history to win a Gold Glove and the youngest tribe player to win a Gold Glove Award since Rick Manning did it at the age of 21 back in 1976. So some uh, great work there by uh, now Indians broadcaster Rick Manning winning a gold glove at a very young age of 21 back in 76. So congratulations to Indian shortstop Francisco Lindor. He works extremely hard, obviously, on his defense. And uh, one of the takeaways from the World Series, he was still out early taking ground balls during the World Series. So uh, that gives you a great idea of the hard work that goes into winning a gold glove. And certainly uh, Francisco Lindor, put in the hard work, and takes away the hardware as a result. Some other news and notes for the Indians on the injury front. Cody Anderson, Tribe starting pitcher who really had an outstanding rookie season a year ago, but a a disappointing year this year, had some elbow issues throughout the season, and he underwent elbow surgery during the week this week, expected to be about eight weeks off before he can begin throwing around the first of the year, but the expectation is that he should be ready to go by the time the season begins in 2017. So we'll keep an eye on that. Some uh, elbow surgery to move some things around a little bit in that elbow, 
for uh, Cody Anderson. Not Tommy John surgery for Anderson, but uh, more some maintenance surgery for him. So uh, hopefully that can remedy some issues that he was struggling with during the season. On the transaction front, the Indians did not extend qualifying offers to some of their players who became free agents at the end of the year, and that includes Mike Napoli, Rajay Davis, and Coco Crisp. But in the instances of Napoli and Davis, the Indians have indicated that they would like to negotiate with them on contracts for next year, just not uh, going through the qualifying offer process. And what that does allow them to do, uh, they could go multiple years with Napoli if they would like and try and find some common ground there with both Napoli and Davis as both the player and the organization have expressed an interest to continue the relationship. And when you look back at career years for both in a lot of different categories, the Indians would love to have them back both from that performance standpoint but also what they meant in the clubhouse to this year's World Series team. So that's a look back at the week gone by. Some news and notes for you on the Tribe front. Stay with us when we come back. We'll hear from Indians Vice President Bob DiBiasio, a Tribe tale coming your way as Tribe Talk continues on the Cleveland Indians Radio Network. Welcome back to Tribe Talk. Jim Rosenhouse back with you from Progressive Field in downtown Cleveland. Our final segment on this week's show. And as we will do on many an occasion during the offseason, we check in with Indians Vice President Bob DiBiasio for another Tribe Tale. It's time for another Tribe Tale with Indians Vice President Bob DiBiasio. Joining me now is former Indians lefty Rick Waits. Waiter, it's great to visit with you, sir. Well, thank you, Bob. I appreciate you. Wanted to talk about some of the, the old times and new times, and there always the great times in Cleveland. Can you catch us up on the various baseball stops that you've made since your playing days ended, which uh, also included some time in Italy? Well, you know, I was with uh, Kate Stein with the Washington Senators, became the Rangers, got traded to Cleveland, got traded to Milwaukee, uh, went to Italy for a few years, sat out about eight years before I started coaching with the Mets. So I guess uh, about 30 of my 40 years in baseball out of high school have been somewhere in pro ball. Well, most importantly, your time spent in Italy, you became a wine connoisseur. Is that correct? Well, you know, I, uh, I was hoping that I might have been a little bit one before I went, but after <laughs> being there and being able to travel not only to Italy, and where, where we lived for six years, but getting into France, Spain, uh, really all of, of Western Europe, uh, I got to taste a lot of wonderful wines. Let's talk a little baseball. You spent 12 years in the big leagues, eight with the Cleveland Indians. You're a member of the top 100 Indians roster. But most importantly, you found your wife, Annie, right here in Cleveland. Update us on the family, if you will. You know, it, Cleveland will always be in my heart. It's the best places I've ever been in baseball. And, uh, you know, we got married at uh, Shaker Heights Country Club there. Uh, my daughter, who now is 26 years old, uh, was born there at the McDonald's house there. And a matter of fact, uh, with her, she just finished her JAG program. She's a military lawyer in the Army. Outstanding. Uh, about to go to airborne school and jump out of airplanes. And then my son, Michael, he's in law school at the University of Arizona. And my other son is in uh, ROTC at Wheaton College in Chicago, who he also has aspirations of 
having a military career. Outstanding. you got all these lawyers running around. You'll be taken care of well. Yeah, I'm telling you, I don't know about that. <laughs> 74 of your 79 big league wins came while wearing a Cleveland Indians uniform, many against the New York Yankees, thus the name the Yankee Killer. Can you reflect on that? Well, you know, uh, there's a couple of us that have kind of been uh, referred to as that way uh, over the years of just having a knack of being able to go out and beat the Yankees, and, and I definitely did. Uh, even in the games that I lost sometimes, I still seem to pitch great, and uh, we can never fully understand it. Uh, I think there have always been lefties for the Yankees that have pitched great in Yankee Stadium, but I did have a knack, I guess, the competition. They were always considered the best during our years, and I always liked to beat the best. So uh, it, it was a lot of fun doing it. Waiter, it was wonderful catching up with you, sir. And on behalf of all Indians fans everywhere, we wish you, Annie, and all your children the very, very best. Well, I really appreciate it. And I know my wife, Annie, and kids always look forward to going back to Cleveland. And one of these times here soon, we're going to come in and watch a weekend of baseball. They still love going to the ballpark. So we're going to do that. We're going to do it soon. Thank you, sir. Rick Waits, our latest Tribe Tale. That's Indians Vice President Bob DiBiasio with another Tribe Tale, and that will put a lid on this week's edition of Tribe Talk. Great to have you with us this week. Hope you can tune in again next week for another hot stove show on the Tribe Talk front. Until then, this is Jim Rosenhouse reminding you that you've been listening to Tribe Talk on the Cleveland Indians Radio Network.